So today I'm doing the scripture. It's found in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. That's Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And it says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts that were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Thank you, Hannah. Our text is the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we are working through verse by verse the gospel of Mark. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 10, which is, as you just heard, it is about divorce. And I need to tell you right at the outset that divorce was as controversial and as emotionally charged a topic in Jesus' day as it is in our day. And really, it's only our commitment to preaching the whole counsel of God, to going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse that compels me to go through the section, because if it were up to me, I wouldn't. If it were up to me, I would skip over this section, and some of you would notice that and call me on that. Why? Because humanly, I struggle with divorce, as probably many of you struggle with divorce. Divorce has impacted my own family, and my extended family has been scarred by divorce and continues to suffer from those scars of divorce. I have close friends who've gone through divorce and are wounded and bear those wounds of divorce. And that's probably the picture of every one of you here. Every one of you here, I am guessing, if we went and one by one went through, you have either been directly impacted by divorce— In other words, you've gone through a divorce yourself, or you have been indirectly impacted. Somebody very close to you, somebody that you love has been divorced. Maybe it is your parents, and you have suffered the effects of that growing up in a divorced home. Maybe it's your children or whoever it may be. So divorce is something that we all struggle with. And for that reason, we really need to understand who it is that Jesus is speaking to here and and the tone in which he's speaking and really where he wants to go with this whole discussion that these Pharisees have sprung on him. The first thing we need to see is who he's speaking to. And we're introduced to that in the context of verses 1 and 2. So so look, in verse 1, we see that that we're, we're given the context. Jesus sets out from Capernaum. And he begins his journey to Judea, which, by the way, is uh, the only journey to Judea that Mark records. And Mark is, what he's doing there, just incidental to the whole subject of divorce, is he is alerting us that Jesus has now begun 
uh, the last phase of his earthly ministry. Jesus is on his way to Judea, where in Judea, as many of you know, the city of Jerusalem is located. And of course, he's going there because he knows he's going to go to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he is going to sacrificially offer himself up on the cross for you and me, that we might be saved. So all of this is in the background of this discussion here. Jesus, uh, really from the context, he crosses the Jordan River from Capernaum going eastward. He goes down the eastern side of the Jordan River to the Transjordan region of Judea. And, and the, that's not an incidental detail. That is the area where, he is, where this is occurring. That is the area where Herod Antipas was the ruler. Herod Antipas, you might remember that just a year or so earlier than this, had imprisoned and ultimately executed John the Baptist. And why did he do that? Why did he arrest John the Baptist? What was the provoking incident? John the Baptist speaking out about the subject of divorce. John the Baptist condemning Herod Antipas for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, a divorce somewhere in there, and remarrying her. John the Baptist spoke out about that. Herod imprisoned him, ultimately had him executed. And so when the Pharisees, were told here, come to test Jesus there in that Transjordan region of Judea, it is very, very likely they knew all of this, and their plot, their intention was, hey, if we can get Jesus to go on record about divorce, like John the Baptist went on record about divorce— then Jesus will put himself in the sights of Herod. Herod will take care of our Jesus problem for us. Let's get him to go on record about his position about divorce. And I say all this because my point is, when we hear Jesus speak about the subject of divorce, we who've either been directly wounded or indirectly affected by divorce, we first need to understand that who Jesus is speaking to here. He is speaking to hostile questioners who are trying to trap him. That is probably nobody here, whether you've been divorced or not, that I doubt that is anybody here. And if Jesus were speaking directly to you, if you've been through a divorce or impacted by divorce, I want you to understand that Jesus would speak to you in a very different tone than we see him speaking here. Jesus would speak to you, I believe, like he spoke to the woman in John 8, the woman who, as you might remember, caught in adultery, a situation probably involving divorce. And what is it when she came broken before him that he said to her, I do not condemn you? He extended to her forgiveness and grace. But then he went on to say, go and sin no more. You're forgiven, now go live in the light of that forgiveness. Now go live in your future relationships and repentance and faith following me. If Jesus were speaking to you, especially those of you who've been through divorce, I think he would speak to you like he speaks to the woman in John chapter 4, the woman at Jacob's well who had had five husbands, divorced four or five times possibly. And what is it that he says to her? He looks inside her heart, and he sees her deep thirst for relationship, and he says, drink from me. Don't look to other relationships to try and quench your thirst. Drink from me. I'm the spring of living water. That's what Jesus would say to you as he says to all of us today. 
But he is speaking to Pharisees, hostile questioners. So bear that in mind as we work through what he says about divorce. They are trying to entrap him uh, in verse 2 by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. In fact, as we work through this text, what you're going to see is Jesus never speaks to the Pharisees about divorce. He does speak about divorce. He speaks about that in a house, verses 10 through 12, with his disciples. And we'll get there next week. That's what we'll look at next week. But with these Pharisees who are trying to entrap him, he does something very different. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 26, 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. You know, a fool, the biblical definition of a fool, someone who is turned away from God, someone who is intent on living their own life, their own way, apart from God. When a fool comes to you, that kind of fool, with an agenda-loaded question, you're under no compulsion to try and answer that, to try and explain that. But the very next verse, Proverbs 26, 5, instead, answer a fool as his folly deserves. Tell him the truth that he needs to hear. Speak to her the truth that she needs to hear. And that's what Jesus does. He will not answer their questions as uh, according to their folly. He answers their questions as their folly deserves. He replies to them, what did Moses command you? Now see the distinction there. What are they asking? What's lawful? Or I like the New Living Translation. What is allowed? And he he is speaking differently. that, That language what is lawful, what is allowed, that that really is an approach to Scripture that says, what can I get away with? Tell me the boundaries so I can stay within the boundaries. It's kind of like, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it, but as a very young believer in my teens and hormones raging and involved in in, uh, dating relationships with young women, I I was like the Pharisees. Youth pastor, tell me, uh, what is allowed in Scripture? How far can you go? Where are the lines so I can know how close to the lines I can get without crossing the lines and still stay within the bounds of Scripture? That is the approach to Scripture that these Pharisees are using. It is a a legalistic approach. It is a selfishly motivated approach. That's what the heart is behind their questions. And so, really, what they're asking him is, uh, like many people who, who are contemplating even marriage, many, they are asking him essentially, Jesus, tell us how we can, if our marriage is not working out to our liking, how, uh, what are our rights to get out of our marriage? They're approaching marriage like it's drafting up a prenuptial agreement. By the way, um, as an attorney, I see surveys from time to time. I recently saw a survey from the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. So these are lawyers who, who specialize in, in all things family-related, including uh, marriage and divorce. And the survey shows that two-thirds of those lawyers surveyed have indicated they've seen a marked increase in the number of their clients coming to them, asking them to draft prenuptial agreements before they get married. And what, what, what does that show? That shows, one, it shows our human nature, but it shows the societal shift where more and more people are entering marriage saying, you know, I got to prepare that this isn't going to last. And so I need to know my rights. I need to know my way that I can get out of marriage safely if this doesn't last. That's 
really the approach of the Pharisees here. Jesus, in answering these fools according as their folly deserves, uh, he, uh, he shows that the underlying emphasis of their question is all wrong. Instead of asking what is lawful, what is allowed, what are the, the boundaries, Jesus tells them they should be asking, what is commanded? What is it that God has said about marriage? What is God's, in other words, His overall will for marriage? What do we see of God's design and purpose for marriage when we look at the whole counsel of God and not just the biblical provisions for divorce? They, uh, I think, not entirely getting it. They answer in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. And what they're citing there, especially that reference to divorce papers, is what Moses writes about in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 and following. You see verse 1 there up on the screen. Let me read you the whole verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he has found some indecency in her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So they're starting with a premise that because this verse exists, divorce is permissible. They just don't agree between the Pharisees on the grounds for divorce. There was a faction of Pharisees that looked at this verse, and they they focused on the first part of that verse, if she becomes displeasing to him, and and they, they, they viewed that liberally as a way to get out of marriage. Some of these were, there was a famous rabbi named Hillel who said, looking at a man, or if she becomes displeasing to him, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. If she burnt, you know, burnt the meal. That is grounds that he can find her displeasing, Hillel said, and you can divorce your wife. There was another rabbi, Akiba, who said, a man may divorce his wife even if she, he finds another fairer than she. In other words, if after a while, as your wife ages, she becomes displeasing to you because there are more attractive models out there, that's valid grounds for a divorce. That's what this one faction would say. The second faction of Pharisees focused on the second part of that phrase, because he has found some indecency in her. And, and they said, you can divorce her, but you have to find some indecency in her. Indecency was something less than adultery, because adultery was punishable by death in other parts of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But even though we don't have a, a, a specific handle on it is, what, what we know is it had to do with some kind of sexual conduct short of illicit sexual intercourse that a man could point to and say, she's become displeasing to me. And that, that is the more conservative group of the Pharisees, but that what they would say was their grounds for divorce. So here we see the Pharisees trying to get Jesus to take a position with one side or the other. They, I, I think they knew that Jesus is probably not going to go with a liberal approach, that you can divorce for those trivial reasons as your wife's appearance or your wife's cooking. I think they were hoping that Jesus was going to take the conservative approach, because that certainly would have covered Herod Antipas's situation. And if they could get him on record taking that conservative position, then that would possibly provoke 
Herod. That would alienate probably many people, but it possibly would provoke Herod so that Herod would take care of their Jesus problem for them. But Jesus isn't drawn into their trap. Verse 5, Jesus told them, he, that is Moses, but really God inspiring Moses, he wrote this commandment for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Jesus is saying, you bring up Deuteronomy 24 to me, but what you have to understand is Deuteronomy 24 does not reflect God's will or God's design for marriage. Deuteronomy 24 is God's concession for what is happening. When when marriage was created in Genesis 2, which we'll look at in just a moment, there was no need for any of this. But by two chapters later, Genesis 4, Genesis 4.19, we're told that Lamech is the first man who takes multiple wives. Polygamy begins. And all kinds of marital sin begins after that. So just two chapters after marriage is created, already we see the human hardness of heart. Already we see men and women who were rebelling against God's design, wanting to live their life their own way, even in marriage. As soon as Moses leads the Israelites into the promised land, that, that, that even accelerates the Israel, Israel, Israelite men looking at what the pagan nations do around them. They start throwing their wives out of their homes if they become displeasing to them without even any legal protections. And so as God inspires Moses to write the law, including the book of Deuteronomy, God revealed to Moses that women under this situation, under the hardness of hearts, needed protection. And he directed them to create these regulations. Deuteronomy 24 is just part of those regulations, but Deuteronomy 24 is a pretty important part of those regulations. Deuteronomy 24 requires men to state the reasons for their divorce, That that way a woman can't be out there who's been divorced and cast out of the home and accused of something she didn't do like adultery. It has to be specified in the divorce certificate. It required the man to provide proof that she was released from the marriage so she at least had the possibility of remarrying. And it prevented the man from passing her back and forth with other men like a piece of chattel, a piece of property, divorcing her and then remarrying her. With that background, I hope that you can see what Jesus was intending for the Pharisees and for us to see that Deuteronomy 24 does not command divorce. Deuteronomy 24 does not encourage divorce. That is not why God gave those verses to Moses. God gave that to limit the harmful effects of divorce that were the result of human hardness of heart, of human rebellion against God's design for marriage. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, and really he's telling us, you can't start in a conversation about divorce. You can't start in a conversation about what God intended between a husband and a wife with with starting about what are the parameters and the legal provisions for divorce. Let's say you have a love for flying, or you think you have a love for flying, and you decide you're going to take some lessons to fly a plane. And so you sign up, you find a flight instructor, and you sign up, and you pay your money, and you show up for the first instruction session. And the instructor gets up there and says, okay, today we are going to learn about the ejection seat in a plane. And he spends the whole hour, and he talks about the mechanics of the ejection seat and how hard to pull it and, 
and how the canopy comes off and, and all the procedures about ejecting out of the plane. You think, well, that's kind of an unusual way to start a course on flying an airplane, but I'll, I'll come back for another lesson. And you go back the next week, and the instructor gets up there and says, okay, today we're going to learn about the parachute, and we're going to learn about, about how your parachute works and all the proper procedures for parachuting out of the plane. And you sit through that lesson as well, and you think, I will give it one more try. I really want to learn to fly. And you go back the third week, and the instructor gets up there and says, today we're going to learn about how to crash land your plane. What happens if your plane crashes? At some point, you begin to realize, I won't understand anything about flying by learning about all the ways to eject out of the plane or parachute out of the plane or crash land the plane. And that is what Jesus is saying to them and to us. You don't really get it if you stay in a discussion about marriage and divorce and remarriage within the, 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 the narrow boundaries of what are the exceptions, what is permissible. And there are exceptions. And we are going to talk about some of those next week. Not this week, but next week. But Jesus says, don't begin there. Jesus says, we need to go back We need to go back behind Deuteronomy 24, before Deuteronomy 24. We need to go back to God's original design for marriage in Genesis 2, before the fall, before man and women sinned and rebelled against God. So Jesus points back to God's design for marriage, seen not in Deuteronomy 24, but in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see him start there in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. If you've done a Bible read-through or you've at least read Genesis, that, that probably is very familiar. It should be. It's in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, 27. Let me read that whole verse for you. So God created mankind. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Notice the linkage of the image of God and male and female being part of the image of God. So by pointing back here to Genesis 1.27, Jesus is saying, first of all, that if you want to understand marriage and divorce and remarriage, first of all, you need to see God's actions in creating the institute, institution of marriage. And what was that? That when God created humanity, mankind, He created humanity, mankind, made up of two uniquely, distinctly different genders, male and female. These are different, and yet they, they complement each other. Not, not complement with an I, like, you know, you look really nice today, but complement with an E. You complete each other. The fact that they are different means that you can't look at just men or you can't look at just women and see the image of God and and as much as we can see it in this fallen world. It is only as you see the two completing each other that you see a dim image or a dim vision of the image of God. And so, we're told how he did that. Genesis 2.22. I, I know it's not up on the screen, but you can turn there if you want. The Lord God made a woman. How did he do that? Out of the man's rib. He started with, with, with man, and he took that, that 
that womanness, that femaleness out of the man so that now the image of God is these two separate men and women parts. I love what the ancient commentator Matthew Henry says of God creating women by taking her out of man's side or rib. He said, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam. She was not made out of his head to rule over him. She was not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but she was made out of his side to be equal with him. She was made under his arm to be protected by him. She was made nearer to his heart to be beloved by him. And this means, I I didn't need to say this 10 years ago, but I need to say it now, this means there is such a thing as gender. This means that God distinctly makes men and women, and that to eradicate gender, to make it some kind of androgynous thing, is to eliminate, is to wipe out the image of God. God very distinctly made two genders, male and female, and those do not change, no matter what we do to our bodies surgically or chemically. This means also that God values both of the genders. And in fact, neither gender by itself exhibits the complete image of God. They need each other to complete each other. That's, if you know the word, complementarianism. That's, that's the idea. These two genders come together to give a complete picture of the image of God. And that also means that anything that denies God's design and creation, like homosexuality or transsexualism, it cuts itself off from the fullness of the divine image that God designed us to experience. It is only as those two genders come together in the commitment of marriage that we get, I I know it's a dim image in this fallen world, but we get an image of the image of God that God created humanity to be. Well, from there, Jesus points us from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, or some versions say cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus, in verse 7 here, he focuses on the, the leaving and the cleaving part of that. That leaving and that being joined to or cleaving, that reveals the plan, or, yeah, the plan of God for marriage. God's plan in designing marriage is that a man would, first of all, leave his parents. He would, by an act of his will, he would step away from his dependence upon his parents, even would step away from his own independence, and he would come voluntarily into a relationship with this woman who's going to be his wife, a relationship that becomes the highest priority relationship in his life under his relationship with God. He raises that up above all other relationships. And God's plan is also that he not only leave his parents, but that he cleave or is joined to his wife. And, and by that cleaving, it doesn't mean it's that they come together in some fused mast where you, where you can't even tell where One begins and the other ends. The man and the woman retain their individuality. They are still two distinctly unique creations of God with their unique personalities and their unique gifts. But while retaining their individuality, they both give up their independence, and they come together in an interdependent 
interdependent relationship. That's what it means to be joined. They come, they become a team. They, they become tightly tied to each other while still each retaining their individuality. David Garland says that marriage partners are like two plants that have grown together in the same pot for so long that their roots have become intertwined, and it becomes difficult to separate the two neatly or completely. And even if that happens through divorce or through death, that plant has been shaped by the presence of the other that it has lived with. That's that image, that illustration of what it means to be cleave together. So this leaving and cleaving, this is God's perfect plan for marriage. This is still God's plan for marriage. This has not gone away because of the hardness of men's heart. And so when, even when we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage, we need to continue to come back to what did God originally intend? What was His plan? The design of the two becoming one flesh that Jesus highlights in verse 8 reveals the purpose of God in marriage. What's God's purpose in marriage? That two become one flesh. Now, there is, there is a sexual image in there, but, but I believe Jesus has something far more than the sexual union in mind here. I think Jesus is describing that, 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 that truth that you can't tell the image of God just in male and just in female, that it is only when these two complementary parts of humanity come together that they form the complete image of God. Ray Steadman describes what this should look like, two distinct and different individuals with different personalities and different gifts coming together within the safe enclosure of a committed covenant relationship, merging their lives in Christ. Now, my guess is there's not a marriage here, certainly not my marriage, that perfectly embodies that, but that's the ideal. That's what God desires for us. That is God's purpose for us, is that we would continue to grow into that, that picture of two lives merging together in Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that there is even a gospel effect of that, that as a man and a woman, a husband and wife merge their lives together in Christ, it is a picture of how Christ is like the husband that marries the, the, the bride, the church, that's all those that he has saved. And in that relationship between Christ and the church, there is a picture not only of marriage, but of the gospel and how we are saved. So the two becoming one flesh reveals God's purpose for marriage that is so easily forgotten in discussions of divorce. And then Jesus upholds and reinforces God's design for marriage with his own command in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. What is he doing? He is upholding this. This is still God's plan. God's plan is not seen in Deuteronomy 24. God's plan is not seen in the other biblical exceptions to divorce. God's plan is seen still in His design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. He reinforces that God's purpose for our marriages has not changed. Sinfulness has made it more difficult, but that is still His purpose for our marriages. 
our human hard-heartedness seen in divorce and, and marital sin, it does not alter God's will for your marriage or my marriage. And really, when Jesus says what, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate, what he's saying is God owns your marriage. Or I would say more directly, Jesus is Lord over our marriages. I am not Lord over my marriage. Jesus is Lord over my marriage. He's saying if God is the one that joined you together, then your marriage belongs to Him. It is not yours to separate. Now again, we will look next week at what God has provided because God has recognized in His mercy and His compassion that difficult things happen and people are put in situations even not of their own choosing. And we will look at that next week. But as I close this morning, I would say this to you. Maybe you are here this morning and you are married, but you are struggling in your marriage. And you've got friends, you've got family members maybe encouraging you to pursue divorce. You've you thought a lot about divorce. Maybe, maybe you've talked with a divorce attorney. Can I just tell you this morning from this text and others that the Lord Jesus, first of all, wants you, even this morning, to submit your marriage to his lordship. He doesn't promise that it will be easy. He doesn't promise that as you do that, suddenly all the challenges will go away. But he says, I want you to focus on my design. I want you to focus on my purpose for your marriage. I want you to submit it to me. Submitting to his lordship over your marriage this morning may mean taking the step of asking for help. It may mean um, going to our counseling department. It may mean going to one of our pastors or our elders. It may mean going to a group of friends and admitting what you have not yet publicly admitted, that you are struggling in your marriage and you need help and you need counsel and you need accountability. And there are people here who will pray with you even after the service confidentially today and direct you to those resources if you're here and you're struggling in your marriage. Let me also speak to you if you hear these words this morning as one who has gone through the painful ripping apart of divorce. Whether that divorce was of your choosing or not, I, I want you to hear that the Lord Jesus, first of all, wants you, if you haven't already, to turn to him to find forgiveness and to find cleansing. His mercy and his grace covers divorce like it does all other sins. And as you turn to him and you come to him at the foot of the cross and you see that his substitutionary sacrifice was all sufficient, there is no sin that somehow becomes too big for what he did at the cross. He offers you forgiveness. And more than that, he offers you cleansing. He offers you even a new beginning. I would also tell you that he calls you in light of that forgiveness like he called the woman caught in adultery. Now go and sin no more. In other words, now in your divorce state, whether you are single or whether you are remarried, he tells you, live in the light of my lordship over your present status. Live in the light of my lordship over your singleness. Live in the light of my lordship over your new marriage. Live the rest of your relational life in repentance and faith in me and he will bring beauty out of ashes. 
even if your first marriage or however many marriages ended in what you would consider nothing but ashes. The Lord Jesus speaks to us wherever we are, happily married, struggling in marriage, wounded by marriage, not yet even married. He speaks to us all. We will pick this up next week, but uh, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come under your word. Again, it is word, it is a part of your word, Lord, that, that hits deeply because so many of us have been wounded in this area. And I pray, Lord, we would hear not your sternness to the Pharisees, uh, not you answering them as their foolishness deserves, but you would hear us, you, that we would hear you speaking to us compassionately and in mercy. We would hear you there, Lord, offering forgiveness. We would hear you there offering cleansing. We would hear you, Lord, uh, speaking to us, calling us to come under your lordship, calling us to rely upon your spirit, calling us to gather together with other believers to make our marriages more and more into your design and purpose. We ask this, Lord, that you would be lifted up and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.